Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You're listening to our Sex and Spirituality series, which will contain references to various aspects of human sexuality and may not be suitable for all listeners. Wilhelm Reich was a student of Sigmund Freud's who went on to develop views on human sexuality, views that questioned prohibitions against contraception and sex education and wondered over the long-term sustainability of monogamous relationships, views that scandalized society. He escaped the Nazis and fled to America, only to be imprisoned by the FBI, hounded by immigration services, and ultimately persecuted by the Food and Drug Administration for his vitalist theories on the existence of an ether-like substance called orgone, which penetrated the universe and, according to Reich, could be accumulated to heal even the most deadly diseases. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors joining us live from Canada. I guess not live. This is recorded, but it's live for me. Nikki. Hello. What's up, man? Nikki uh, Hiller Henderson. Yep. I never know how many of your last names to say. Yeah, you know, how many. I just, you know, one, two, both. <laughs> we'll keep them Neither. both. It's fine. It's got a nice alliteration. So uh, how are things in Canada? I mean, getting cold. It's toque weather. Gotta get your toques out. What the hell is that for the rest of us in the world it's who aren't in Canada? It's just a winter hat. It's a it's just, I think it's a French, Canadian French word for a winter hat. I imagine it being uniquely folky, though. Like it has a nice point that flops forward or something. It's like you guys have special hats up there. Ear flaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all look like deer hunters. <laughs> Olivia Literal, it is birthday season for you. How are things? Happy birthday. Happy birthday. I like Thank you. I like how I I have a whole season. You do. You do. Well, I mean, I feel like Scorpio you season is entirely idea. yours. Oh, I was going for Yeah, okay. That works too. Thank you. I'll take it, I guess. I just associate all of Scorpio season with you. Oh, I thank you. You know, I'm trying. I'm trying to feel it, you know. How many, it's been hard. How many actors are Scorpios? Do you know? How many of our, us? Oh God! Is it Savannah? Like our people? Yeah, Savannah's a Scorpio. Yeah, right? Savannah's a Scorpio. Um, I thought we had we've a had few. other people in our program that are Scorpios, but not so many people on here. Oh, no. Brandon's a Scorpio. Oh, I think. Okay. I think technically popular. Probably miss someone, but yeah. What have you been up to? You know, just being twenty-seven, I guess. <laughs> Feeling closer to the grave. Oh come on. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, after you get kicked off your parents' like insurance at twenty five, like what is there? You know? <laughs> oh, it's all downhill from there. Yeah, like what else is there? What other birthday is there? I guess thirty, but that's a mixed bag, right? <laughs> I don't. I did not have any problem with thirty, but I was busy. I guess you got to keep busy. You have you? No, you didn't have a kid then. No, right? No, no. Yeah. Huh. Just gotta well, keep you moving. were teaching, I guess. Yeah, keep moving, keep moving. Yeah. Let's pledge it out. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. I think we were almost together there, oddly enough. Yeah, that was pretty good. It's not too bad. Olivia did a live one with me, Nikki, a couple weeks ago. And we, we yes. can do it very easily together. In the room. <laughs> we'll get you really? down here one day. I guess we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You survive that flight to uh, Calgary and we'll, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> yeah, apparently I'm willing to travel now. So <laughs> Nikki is willing to travel. So everyone, just so you know, listeners, Nikki is willing to travel. I don't know. know what that means to you, but... <laughs> But not for free. Not for free. No, it's going to cost you. Olivia, <laughs> plug us in. Plug, plug, plug. There we are. Uh, all right, let's just do a little bit, just a little tiny bit on our patrons. Daddy Bones. Daddy Bones. Oh. And a pledge bump from Echo W. Getting a little light on the patrons, friends. Uh, so I, I want to encourage you all again to join the patrons. We have been doing the reviews in the plugs, uh, and I want to keep that up because I hope it's encouraging people to say things about us. Mike Latouris in Canada. Nikki, Canada. <laughs> A yeah. place you know well, finds us very well researched, says we got the right amount of skepticism. Appreciate that. I know what you oh. mean, exactly. 
Uh, Olivia, I think you're going to like this one. This is the Grim Trucker, a new friend oh of yours. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's a beautiful name. Wow. I was nice. talking to the Grim Trucker over email. Says we're uh, his new favorite podcast. Uh, also says many other nice things about all of us, including you, Olivia, and the whole crew. And that's on Podchaser. So check us out on Podchaser. Olivia, you got to get up on Podchaser. I think I have it on my phone. Oh, you got to right? you got to put your picture on there. You told me to do it, and I did. You got to put oh, your picture on. Is it like a an active thing? Yeah, yeah. It's like a. You... I don't know technology. I'm 27, guys. <laughs> I... Well, we'll have to. Have a... I should. We'll but... sit down one afternoon. I'll walk you through this thing. Uh... Since you're so old. Thank you. Thank you, Grandpa. <laughs> wow, 27, you lose your, uh, or 25, you lose your parents' insurance and yeah. all knowledge of technology. It's rough to be an yeah, American. Yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to America. All right, close us out. Plug, plug, plug. Okay, let's get into Wilhelm Reich. Uh, he grew up on a farm in the eastern part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, much like Olivia, uh, and, mm. but it was a bit earlier, at the turn of the 20th century. His mother committed yes. suicide in 1910 when her affair with one of Reich's tutors was exposed. Yikes. Yeah, uh, that's important. I mean, we got to kind of linger on that for a second. So his mother was having an affair. Everybody found out. Uh, and this was a very like formative moment for him. He's, you know, post-pubescent, I think, but early teen years here. And then his father died four years later of tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah that's a rough couple of years. Yeah. Um, and then the next year, 1915, he enlisted in the Austrian army, because that's how you fix that psychological damage. Oh, no. Let's get guns involved. <laughs> yeah, so. What is hap? Is that, oh, what year is that? 1915, World War One. Okay, right, we're getting there, yeah. So he was commissioned as a lieutenant and fought on the Italian front. After the war, he attended the University of Vienna, where he studied medicine, completing his bachelor's and MD in just four years of rigorous study. That's pretty rigorous. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Along with several other students, he set up an informal seminar to study sexuality, a neglected topic in the curriculum. He just like started a club for this. Nice. And he made contact with Professor Sigmund Freud, asking for his input on the subject. Right? Just because you can just do that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. From 1922 to 1924, two years, Reich did postgraduate work at the Neurological and Psychiatric University Clinic. His experience with patients there and his reading of Freud led him to understand that neurotic patients, both male and female, did not feel full gratification in intercourse. Got me so far? Only when his patients okay. became capable of complete gratification did their neurotic symptoms improve. So he's saying if you're neurotic, you don't enjoy sex as much. I guess that makes sense. Well, though. I mean, if you're neurotic, you're probably not enjoying anything. <laughs> right. <much>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, I may be contrary to, to what we tend to think. He's saying if you could get to a point, and this is like chicken and egg, I suppose, but if you can get to a point where you can fully enjoy sex, then your symptoms, your, your mental health issues will begin to dissipate. If you just could... a sex addiction, then at that point, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, are you just replacing it with something else of a problem? I'm not saying you have to have sex three times a day. <laughs> eh, I guess. Well, it sounds like what he's saying baseline is if you can learn how to relax, you'll be less neurotic. Like, it, sex is important though. Yeah, you, you can't get out of sex entirely there, Nikki. But yes, I, I mean you could be having it once a week or whatever you need to. But yeah. You need to, that's part of the cure, I guess. Just give me a pill, you know. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Too much work for Olivia. Yeah. Uh, this led to his theory that orgastic potency was directly tied to mental health. Good quality sexual experiences were essential to relieving symptoms. Reich went on to develop the notion of character analysis, arguing that a patient's entire persona was a product of their neurosis and they should be analyzed and treated accordingly. Got me? Okay. <laughs> so, so you're just going to think for a second, all right? Ponder yeah. while I, I'll carry on. You guys can sit on that. In 1926, Freud broke with his own ideas about sexual repression that had proved so inspirational to Reich. 
Freud had initially thought that sexual repression caused anxiety, but now he was arguing that anxiety led to sexual repression, reversing his system. Sort of a little bit like what Nikki's saying, that you know, you can't have good sex if you're nervous all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Freud figured that out, but Reich is saying, eh, I'm not so sure, man. Maybe if you can have good sex, that'll help you be less nervous. <laughs> it's like they're saying the same thing differently yeah. back and forth. But I mean, it makes a difference to you, the patient. You know, what should you be doing? Mm-hmm. Should you be relaxing to try to enjoy sex? Or should you be enjoying sex so you can relax? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Reich continued to hold on to his ideas, but Freud reassured him that psychoanalysis was a science and the truth would eventually come out as they gathered evidence. In his 1927 Function of the Orgasm, Reich suggested that individuals had an energy household from which energy needed to be regularly discharged to prevent neurosis. This is a little bit like um, chakras and stuff now to me. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Reich developed a fairly radical set of political views rooted in Marxism. He believed that the working class's various mental health issues could be attributed to their poor living conditions. I've been there. We've all been there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki's right there right now. Valid point. (laughs) In the closet. Uh, (laughs) Her poor recording conditions. He advocated for abortion rights, sex education, and the repeal of legal sanctions against homosexuals. Okay. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Yeah. Yeah, we like that. But Reich was never embraced by any particular political movement. His book, The Psychology of Fascism, caused him to be banned from the Communist Party. (laughs) Right. Think about that. And his books were burned by the Nazis. So incidentally, his psychology of fascism isn't like, (laughs) hooray, fascists. Boy, you guys are healthy. (laughs) Why I love fascism. Yeah, it is the exact opposite of that. But oddly, the Communist Party was not a big fan. Okay, so this was only the beginning of controversy in Reich's life, as you probably heard at the beginning of the episode. He left Vienna for Berlin in 1930, but was forced to flee the Nazis in 1933, in part for his radical ideas. I mean, remember, he did write a whole book about how fascists have psychological problems. But also because he's a Marxist, which we don't, Hitler was, this is sort of like what we miss about, I can't say this enough, like the World War II, the Holocaust, we think, you know, there's so much emphasis on the Jews, and that's not inaccurate. Certainly Hitler persecuted Jews, but also gays and the Marxists, right? A lot of Marxist thinkers had to get out of Dodge or they would be killed. He returned to Vienna, then Denmark and Norway, before moving to the U.S. in 1939, before the Nazi invasion of Norway. So basically, he's trying to get away, and Hitler's just chasing him down across Europe. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, he's not the only one. A lot of intellectuals had this experience where they were trying to get away from Hitler, and you know, eventually he gets to France, where there's like you know Sartre and stuff hanging out. It's not fun. Mm-hmm. You can't get away from the man. Walter Benjamin, there, there were you know, intellectuals who killed themselves because Hitler just eventually caught them, and they felt like they couldn't get away from him. On his arrival, the FBI opened a file on Reich and had him imprisoned for a month, and the INS ran a long campaign to have the naturalized citizen Reich denaturalized and deported. I didn't know they could do that. What is that? INS? What is that? Inter- uh, the, that's Immigration and Naturalization Services. Oh, yeah. okay. What is naturalization? Uh, so that it's a way of making you a citizen, so you're considered a naturalized oh, citizen. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Then you're not treated as an immigrant. Oh, okay. I guess I should know that as an American, but <laughs> did not know about the INS. I guess I did, but anyway. In uh, late 1947, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration began its campaign to shut down Reich's work, accusing him of medical fraud for his work on orgone energy. Can you imagine being chased <laughs> down by the just FDA? Can't catch a break. Oh, is this like, I'm running from that? Hitler. I'm running from the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> the cow people. So is this this is the Oregon Energy guy? This is Oregon Energy guy. Yeah, we're getting there. Oh, okay, yep. I okay. Right about him. I didn't connect the two until just now. But Sherry Schreiner was all about that Oregon <laughs> well, Energy. We'll be kinder to Reich probably than uh, we were to Sherry Schreiner. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I'm going to be kinder to Reich. I I like him, but the Oregon theory is certainly subject to doubt. Ike talks about Oregon energy too, I think. Oh, this will be popular with our conspiracy listeners. I look forward to those crappy reviews. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, 
these people, I, I suspect it's the conspiracy listener. Uh, they write these completely useless reviews. They don't even reference anything. So we really just have to guess. They'll say things like trash, dumpster fire. That's all they say. That's all the review says. Like which episode pissed you off? Was it me? Is it something I said? Was it Nikki? Like, what are you mad about? We don't know. Oh my gosh. We're just all Do you trash. Just hate Canadians? Is that what this is about? It could be. I've posted a what, Olivia. Like, it's like a hundred hours of podcasts. Like, what in particular about this yeah. is a dumpster fire to you? Right, right, right. All hundred hours. Come on. Anyway. <laughs> A, a very recent review. Uh, they don't bother me honestly anymore, but I, I do wish, like, at least I could know what your problem is when you post a review. Anyway, if you're thinking of uh, shit talking us right now, please be be specific. <laughs> yeah, just like make it entertaining at least. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna go to the effort, mm-hmm. if you're gonna say you hate us, tell us why you hate us. Exactly. <laughs> give me a, give me one. Exactly. Reason. <laughs> Of course, none of us wanted to be like, I hate this person. <laughs> we would right, not want yeah. that. So in second thought, just stick with the vague nonsense. Reich refused to appear in court, saying that scientific matters could not be proven in a court of law. His books, journals, and orgone devices were gathered up and destroyed, which, in my opinion, was a fairly un-American censoring effort. Like, come on, his journals, his books? That seems a little like you're threatened by him, doesn't it? Yeah, that's um, that's a bit extreme. If you just think he's ridiculous and you don't you buy care, the theory, yeah. why are we burning his stuff? No, that's totally being threatened, feeling threatened. And he is a Marxist and there's yeah. anti-communism, right? So it kind of makes yeah, people sense. People don't just burn books. Be- well, well, at that they, time, they kind of they kind of did just yeah. burn books. <laughs> yeah, but they had a reason, even if it was wrong, yeah. you know? Hitler was threatened by the ideas in the books he burned, including Reich's books. And I, I assume the U.S. government felt the same way about whatever was in Reich's stuff, which I think was Marxist, and that may have been the reason. But the U.S. housed a lot of Marxists, like Bertolt Brecht, huge theater guy, a very oh, important yeah. figure. He came to the U.S. I mean, we housed a lot of escaped Mar- Marxists, Marxists who got away from Germany. It doesn't take much to ban a book here. Like the Hunger Games series is like banned it's, yeah, in some places, yeah. But we're not going to burn them. Well, I don't know. Some people. Yeah. Why is it even banned? I think but if anyway. if the crazy PTA is going to burn a book, that's one thing. But if the FDA is going to do it, that's <laughs> oh where God. I get a little PTA just or a bunch FDA. Of PTA moms just like burning books. <laughs> Reich and his assistant, Michael Silvert, were charged with criminal contempt, found guilty, and sentenced to two years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Reich died in the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania in 1957, uh, incidentally not far from where I did my undergrad work, near Lewisburg. I was in Sealance Grove, Pennsylvania, which is a town that never gets mentioned by anyone under any circumstances. Uh, never heard of her. And Lewisburg is uh, a neighboring area where... Uh, What's expensive? Bucknell is located. I did not go to Bucknell. I went to Susquehanna, but uh, yeah, Bucknell's our expensive sister. <laughs> you don't, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Central Pennsylvania, man. Central Pennsylvania. They feel the same way about uh, Eastern Shore, so. <laughs> or probably parts of Winnipeg. Um, <laughs> or just Winnipeg in general. So he was only in jail for two years. But he died, he died there. in jail. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was a rough break. Yep. Oh, he's a bit older. I mean, I think in his 60s, maybe. So. Oh, shit. Okay. Oh. Oh, but that's not ancient. He could have. <laughs> no. I mean, for the time, that's pretty good, it's though. It's 1957, right? not 1873. Yeah. Okay, but I've been reading a lot of books in that time period right now, and bitches be dying left and right. <laughs> and I mean bitches. When I say bitches, I mean everyone. Okay. You know? Everyone. Dying. All these bitches dying. It's the stress of World yeah. War II. Well, I was about to say Fair. the Great Depression wasn't that long ago. Yeah, those people yeah. had a rough life. I mean, yeah. I mean, my grandparents lived through the Depression, but they were children. They were very young, so it probably didn't affect them as much. They weren't as stressed out. But my great-grandparents yeah. lived, my great-great-grandfather, he was alive when I was alive. So, I mean, when I was born. Anyway, we're, we got good stock here. Good genes. Great. Orgone energy. Olivia wants to know more about. Let's get into it. Yes. It is Reich's most occult concept and also his most controversial, as Olivia's references to conspiracy theorists (laughs) suggests. Orgone is Reich's name for life energy, the elusive vital force behind strict material analysis that biologists have debated across millennia. 
kind of like the ether. According to Reich scholar James DeMeo, Reich argued that there was a bioenergetic force, a life energy inside all living organisms that often expressed itself as emotion or sexuality. It could be directly observed through a microscope where it appeared as a bluish glowing field around living cells, particularly blood cells. Orgone energy is not limited to the bodies of living creatures. It also equates to a kind of cosmic ether pervading space. So you can see it out your window. But also under a microscope. Yes, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you want to be. It's in you. It's around you. Reich demonstrated the presence of orgone energy with heat waves seen rippling on top of hot pavement or deserts or on mountaintops. So you see those ripples? That's orgone. He noted that while heat rises, these waves do not, but rather move in a pattern from west to east, which is fascinating if it's true. (laughs) (laughs) So we're all like, oh yeah, that's just heat coming off the pavement. But he's like, no, that's actually active orgone passing across the pavement. I mean, who's to say he's wrong? Somebody, but not not us. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, these waves can appear in all temperatures. Electricity. I think that I have seen them. In, do you see them, Nikki? You, you get sun dogs. What? That's what that's what we called them. Some anyway, dogs in Canada. Sun, you call sun, oh sun, sun dogs. dogs. Like when the I don't know when the sun hits funny and there's those uh, like wavy lines. But it, um, it could happen in the cold, right? Yeah, but it's like about the sun, I think, not the heat. That's why we call them like sun dogs. Sun dogs. You, you Canadians in your ways. I guess it looks like some things like running across the sky. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. It's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just a me thing. Maybe I made that up. I don't know. Don't quote no. all of Canada. <laughs> I thought you were trying to reference snow dogs at first. And I was like, what? <laughs> but this makes, this is cooler. Yeah. <laughs> Electricity in the atmosphere, white noise on the radio, the blue color of the sky, and the blue tint of water in deep lakes or oceans are all a product of orgone energy. The, the color? The color. Is... The blue. The blueness comes from orgone. But if it's in everything... That's, it is. And it's bluish. Why just... Blue... But it's in things that aren't blue... Why aren't we Avatar people, then? Do you get what I'm asking? (laughs) Am I making sense? (laughs) I guess um, because the sky is transparent, that's why we can see it. But, you know, when you hold the orgone is, you know, like it's very light. So seeing it against other colors, it sort of fades to the background. You can't see it as clearly. And it can be more or less concentrated. Yeah. I think the things that she, like Sherry Schreiner would sell, I think they were blue, like the Oregon. Yeah. It's all about energy blue. Energy gun thing. I love the white noise them. idea. Like, who knows what white noise is? Reich does. <laughs> Orgone energy penetrates everything at different speeds. It is present everywhere, different only in density or concentration. Orgone energy accumulators operate everywhere. So you're probably saying to yourself, how can I build my own orgone energy accumulator? Is that what you guys were thinking? Uh, yeah, well, you, yeah, absolutely. I was, you could just buy it, but yeah. Oh, I'm going to tell you how. Well, that's no fun. DIY. Follow these easy steps. That's true. <laughs> you don't know what you're buying on the Make internet. it yourself. First, create a box out of an organic and non-metallic material, but not wood, which is a bad absorber. So I guess like clay or earth or something. I was about to say, you just took out the biggest contender. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. clay. you could do a clay box. Organic layers absorb and metallic layers reflect orgone energy. So the organic layers should be on the outside and metallic on the inside. The air quality should be dry rather than humid since humidity attracts orgone energy and does not allow it to float freely. So keep it dry. Closer to the equator and further from the Earth's surface at a higher altitude are the best climate conditions for orgone therapy. So build your box, climb the mountain, set it down, get inside. You don't want to climb the mountain? The middle of the prairies. There's there's no Arizona, dry heat, perfect. The closer the patient's body is to the metallic wall, the better. And the more orgone accumulators in the room, the stronger the effect in a single accumulator. The constant temperature difference at the orgone accumulator invalidates the absolute validity of the second law of thermodynamics, which assumes that there exists only a potential from the higher to the lower energy level. 
The orgone accumulator demonstrates the principle of an energy shift from the lower to the higher level, the buildup of energy, the creation of a higher potential, the organomic potential from low to high. Um, well, I've seen a picture of like the 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 organ box or whatever the and uh, I've just seen one where it's open and like the inside of the door is like metal. And it looks like a oh, when you stand, the like whole body stands cell. inside, yeah, yeah, one of those. Um, it looks like a like very tiny padded cell. Yep. yep. Oh, what the fuck? Sorry, I just started looking up pictures. <laughs> is that really? Is this what this really looks like? Are you looking at like the a old chair pictures? In a fucking box. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Oh my god, no! What Houdini <laughs> bullshit is this? Can you imagine if you're claustrophobic and he's like, I, "This will help yeah. your neurosis." You go and you start hyperventilating. <laughs> I would literally, I would, I would have a mental breakdown if you put me in here. <laughs> does it like lock? No, why would we don't need to lock How it? How does it stay closed? There's no reason it to lock it. It doesn't look like there's even like a latch on the just, door. Just gently close the door. It does look pretty, pretty menacing. <laughs> it literally looks like some like toy box killer shit. Like I don't know. It's like it's not okay. I don't know. It's good for you. It's like a locker. It's good for you. Oh, okay. This one has a little latch. The other one I was looking at does not have a latch on the door. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. Medical benefits come from daily regular sittings, ladies, inside the accumulator. You need to sit for five to 30 minutes a session. You can only, five minutes, you could do five minutes, with the session decreasing with regular use. You might have to start with 30. Regular use is necessary to see re results. Irregular use prevents the body from building up an adequate store of orgone irradiation. So you got to build up your orgone store over time, which sort of like dissipates afterwards. So you always have to go back in the box. Yeah, you got to get back in. You need a little bit more, like a hot tub. I don't know if how it's like a hot tub at all, but let's pretend it's like a hot tub. <laughs> Build up your heat. The energy field of the patient and the accumulator interact, causing feelings of warmth and prickling and a slight raise in your body temperature. Patients get the sensation of illumination or a soft glow pervading their bodies and should stay inside until they feel they've had enough of this glow. Staying too long will cause over-irradiation accompanied by unpleasant feelings like nausea and pressure in the head. Like, is this just a microwave? I'm confused. <laughs> well, it doesn't Do you know plug I mean? in. You don't turn it on. No, but I'm saying, is this okay You're just sitting there you? basking in your own heat. You're just hyperventilating. Yeah. That's what this, uh, all the all the, the benefits are. Is just <laughs> yeah. You're just losing lack of oxygen. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, Nikki, you, you are basking in your own heat in a way. People who are chronically depressed or suffer from fatigue, malnourishment, and cancer are undercharged. People suffering from hypertension, hysterical symptoms, or severe acute sexual stasis, boy, let's hope we never have that, are <laughs> overcharged. This latter group so, should be treated for a short duration. What if someone has, like, bipolar, where they're both? Uh, theoretically, the organ box balances you. It's just a, a matter of how long you're in there. It balances out your orgone. How long you have to cook. Quantity, yeah. So I guess theoretically, you know, depending on your state, it would push you in the direction you need to closer to equilibrium. No death due to over-irradiation has yet occurred in 10 years of orgone energy application, but its possibility cannot be entirely excluded. One should especially watch out for high blood pressure cases, which could react to the expansive vagitonic influence of orgone energy with a sharp rise instead of decrease of pressure. I would just like to mention that in these pictures, uh, I only see women in the box with men doing the the, the stuff. That's interesting. And I don't know what that's about. It is interesting. You don't? <laughs> no, I do. I do, Nikki. Yes. I mean, that goes we, back to Freud treating the right. uh, hysterical patient, the hysterical woman. Mm -hmm. Like, they're these, like, housewives that are just, like... Well, yes, because they have room. emotions, Olivia, so they're hysterical. Oh, yeah, you're right. Frenzied as, frenzied as shit. You know, in, in Reich's defense, though, I have to say that when it comes to new agey or stuff, women are often more open-minded, right, about these things, mediumship and that That's kind true. of thing. Historically, yeah. women have been more open-minded, so it could be that as well. Yeah, so. it's just interesting that the men are 
making it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. That's that's science. And... <laughs> yeah, I know. Just pointing that out anyway. The energy targets the whole person, so it can take several days or weeks for the accumulator to impact specific complaints like a headache, cold, or arthritis. It can also be applied in a shooter or funnel to specific problem areas. For example, you're going to love this, you two. A glass tube containing steel wool can be inserted into your vagina to no. irradiate oh, and reduce no. bacteria. No. I don't think the steel wool would come in contact with your parts, but the tube does. And the, I think the wool is inside the tube. So you'll only Why? feel the glass tube. Because I mean, it still, needs to no. be metal inside? Yeah, that's the that... metal layer. So the glass oh is God, the natural no. layer, and then the metal layer is on the inside. So you don't feel the metal. You only feel the glass. As a scientist, he didn't know that that shit just cleans itself. Like, <laughs> oh, the vagina? Nobody mm. knows that. Lots of men still don't know that, Olivia. Uh, I know. Of course they tried to shove steel wool up us. This is, this is the second episode where we're bringing up the magic of the vagina. Uh, Anna talked about this the last time. Yes, the vagina is self-cleaning. Like yeah, another. we don't. We all need to be putting steel wool douches up there. <laughs> what the hell? Wow, tampons have come so far. <laughs> yeah, Oregon tampons. Oregon tampon. Oh no! Oh no! You know they sell those somewhere. If they don't, you know they should get on that. If not, someone is writing that down right yeah. now. <laughs> it should be us. We should. This should be part of the merch. Nobody take our idea. We claimed talk it. To Dan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shall we talk about the sexual revolution? Because I think you guys will like these ideas better. Yeah. Orgone was by no means Reich's only radical idea. In The Sexual Revolution, which is the name of a book of his, he laid out some serious critiques of love and marriage in capitalist society in the first half of the 20th century. Reich's individual patients reflect a sociological problem that consumes the masses, defined by sexual inhibition, inability to achieve sexual gratification, the belief that sexuality in children and adolescents is an aberration, and the inability to think outside the bonds of lifelong monogamy. These problems manifest in a kind of shell that the individual uses to protect him or herself against both the social demands of the world and the inner demands of instinct. We're insulated on all sides, and this keeps us from the total ability to live. If, however, one dissolves at the same time the infantile fixations to the parental home, to the infantile traumata, and the antisexual taboos, more and more energy finds its way to the genital system. With that, the natural genital needs awaken to new life or are established for the first time. If now one eliminates the genital inhibitions and genital anxiety, and if thus the patient acquires the ability for full orgastic gratification and has the good fortune to find a suitable sexual partner, one observes a change in the patient's total behavior. So we have been raised from day one, is what he's saying here. We have been raised from day one to believe that to, to control our sexual feelings and not to express them. And this has caused blockages in us. And basically our whole lives are about controlling rather than expressing our sexual feelings. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So sexual satisfaction leads to a clearer head and more rational thinking, choices that are more natural and in line with the individual's actual needs and less artificial or socially determined, and in general, a greater capacity for immediate contact with our impulses. I don't, I don't think I disagree necessarily. Yeah, I guess if you're not thinking about sex, then you're more productive. Yeah, if you're satisfied. <laughs> yeah, is, is that like just, yeah, I guess that's true. Cool. The orgasm is key, and not all orgasms are created equal. Amen. Preach, brother. <laughs> Men and women alike can have unsatisfying sexual experiences. Yeah. Now, let me school you all. This is absolutely true. Men can have bad orgasms. Not just because you got a man to finish doesn't mean he enjoyed it. Preach, Rob. Sorry. Yeah, you want to tell him how you feel. It's the truth, though. Come on, people with penises. Let us know. Rise up. Everyone can have bad sex. (laughs) Everyone can. Yes, it is true. Women are always so proud of themselves that it's so easy to get the penis to finish. Eh, cool, but shit's variable. Anyway, reaching climax, says Reich, all climaxes are not created equal. 
Reich argues that we must work toward orgastic satisfaction, which is a necessary precondition for anything like a sustainable monogamous relationship. By that, he doesn't mean that sexual satisfaction is all that can keep a marriage together, but rather it is the bedrock for a happy union. Many marriages survive not because of orgastic satisfaction, but rather because of moral inhibitions. Cultural codes, norms, and economics keep the marriage alive rather than an atmosphere of genuine psychological well-being. Any of you are starting to cry out there. And... <laughs> this is tough. This can be tough to hear. I, I, yeah, I found this book quite challenging, um, but I don't, I don't disagree with him. I think this no, is true. That's a good point. People stay in relationships for lots of reasons. Um, and uh, sexual satisfaction often suggests, but you know, here's the other thing doesn't always suggest uh, that it, you're enjoying the relationship. People aren't always in relationships they're enjoying, is part of what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. Reich imagines a situation not unlike what many of us have achieved in the Western world, in which teenagers are raised to discover their capacity to achieve sexual satisfaction at the onset of puberty and long before marriage. Now, again, this is the 1930s, so this is a pretty wild idea. We went through a period and continue to fight this out, Olivia. Am I right in the United States on sex education and when it's appropriate? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you go back, masturbation, like th- we've been obsessed with keeping kids from touching themselves you know all that comes to mind is the, that yeah. like cross that bed thing where it's like you strap your kids arms down like jesus on the cross well, kellogg cereal graham crackers like we invented yeah. cereals to keep kids hands busy so they didn't play with their bits what yeah <laughs> yes welcome to the western Wild. world yeah <sighs> my kid likes to be naked uh and i <laughs> It's kind of annoying because, like, I got stuff to do. I got to get her jammies on and put her in bed. But, like, you know, the the Reich in me is like, oh, fine. I will let I'll let you have ten minutes of naked time. You know what I mean? Just let you run around. Yeah, like free. I like I have like a clock. I'm fine. This is your whatever. You gotta let her. You gotta let her have it now because someday she it's just gonna be a lot less more more limited. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. Situations where she gets to just in Reich's universe, uh, Olivia. I think he would try to correct that. But yes, you're right. <laughs> No, sometimes you just need your naked time, you know? Right, you do. I think that's true yeah. of adults. Everybody needs their naked time. Yeah. So who am I to deny a three-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Reich emphasizes that this is dependent on giving teenagers the social and emotional environment and practical tools to make this happen. In order to be able to live sex economically, it is not sufficient that the girl have a free genital sexuality. She need, in addition, an undisturbed room proper contraceptives, a friend who is capable of love. She needs understanding parents and a sex-affirmative social atmosphere. He's talking about boys too, but you know, he's focused on the girl in this instance because the girls are the ones who are most likely to get scolded for having open sexuality. Yeah. So, you know, he's saying you can't just tell her, you know, fine, touch yourself, but you... (laughs) You got to do all these other things. Like it's a complex social maneuver to make a girl feel really comfortable with her body. Yeah, for sure. At the time, the legal system often opposed the capacity for a girl in particular to explore her sexuality freely. I believe at present, this remains partially true. As Reich observed in his day that any major organized religious denominations continue to suppress sexual desire as a matter of dogma. But prohibitions that force us to act against our nature by limiting our ability to free sexual expression lead to deep psychological distress. Reich says that sex economy fights moral regulation because moral regulation produces just what it attempts to fight, antisocial impulses. Sex economy does not fight a morality which is life-affirmative, that is to say, that is in line with the natural impulses of humans. You following me? Sex economy is good for him. That's what we're going for. Is like a good sex economy. That's that's the that's the goal. Um, it, and I I really think it's telling. He says moral regulation produces what it attempts to fight. So our antisocial impulses to things like uh, spousal abuse, let's say, or rape, are driven by moral regulation. In Reich's opinion, these. Regulations create these acts. 
The essence of sex economic regulation lies in the avoidance of any absolute norms or precepts, and in the recognition of the will to life and pleasure in living as the regulators of social life. Okay, so let's start with adolescence. Our moral prohibitions against extramarital sex before marriage have bred the need for prostitution. Follow me here. Girls must remain chaste so that young boys seek satisfaction with a professional. So we regulate girls. We say, you're not allowed to have sex. So boys are like, oh, I can't have sex with a, you know, a girl. So I'm going to go get a professional to do it. Still a woman. Continue. <laughs> it is still a woman they're having sex with, but I guess his point is that they're not having sex with a peer. That's like, um, I don't know if this is actually like this at all, but it reminds me of uh, in my like medieval class I took, one of them. They were talking about how like, it was pretty common for like, especially in certain countries for like men, like young men before they were married to take on like basically like concubines or like whatever you want to call them. And then like could have kids or do whatever and be sexually active. And then like when they were expected to get married, then they had to like normally drop them, you know, and then aristocratic like, men, you mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Upper class men. For yeah. the most part, I guess there was some like, well, <laughs> concubinage gets weird and, anyway, but Reich says that under these circumstances, sex takes on a mercenary character as opposed to being the tender connection between two people seeking to satisfy each other's needs with the prostitute. Only the male's needs matter. She's getting paid. Reich's talk of adolescents visiting prostitutes is a bit dated, I admit, but <laughs> right, we don't. That's generally not a part of anyone's. No one who's maybe if you're listening and your dad took you a prostitute, that's, by all means, let us know. Maybe, but generally, that's not happening anymore. Let a therapist know. Let a therapist know about that one. Yeah, yeah don't let us Clear know. Clear it. Right. Make sure it was okay, and then maybe. Talk However, in my opinion, we can bring Reich's idea to the modern day. In the 21st century, we can see this attitude in mainstream pornography, which is used by everyone everywhere. Don't even tell me. But it is perhaps most influential on the sexual habits of teenagers. Not all pornography, but a lot of mainstream pornography. Yeah, that you know, free stuff on the main page of Pornhub focuses on male gratification and treats the female performer as an object to be used for that male's gratification. Facials, gangbangs, and violent penetration give a very masculine, one-sided view of the sexual experience. Teenage boys are literally using this pornography to reach orgasm without having to engage with a human female complete with her own complex sexual needs. The pornography itself replicates the situation back to them, transforming the female performer into a kind of living embodiment of the pornography, an object to be used for gratification. You got me? Do you agree? Yep. yep. <laughs> it's a problem. And like when, Especially because teenage boys, they don't... like they're not necessarily seeking that out and be like, oh yeah, that's that good shit. That's just what appears. And so it like forms these really unhealthy uh, ideas or obsessions about like what sex should be because they don't know anything else. They haven't seen anything else and like so out of touch. I mean, maybe this is just me. I don't know. My kink is really a deep in a partner's pleasure. I can't fathom this. Like these videos, I don't even find particularly sexy for that reason, that it doesn't seem to concern itself very much with the partner, with the female. I mean, that's just, that's me. So I, I like to think that naturally this is what would happen if we weren't exposed to these things at an early age. I mean, I come up, came up at a time when pornography wasn't so accessible but also where my dad didn't take me to see a prostitute. So <laughs> maybe the 90s were a great time to develop your sexual identity. I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, not the fantastic time for for, homeless, for folks who are not straight, but, uh, you know, give it, give it a decade and things got, got significantly better there too. I've had even discussions with, uh, like, people I, that identify as male who, like, have said they specifically will only watch like amateur like porn like super super like people just recording yeah. in their homes because it's the only thing that's like remotely real and like mm -hmm. yeah. normally it is like a reciprocation involved like it's not 
Well, I guess it, it could also be one-sided. I don't know. But, like, that was their rationale. And I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. I don't want to come down on uh, sex workers or no. all porn actresses uh, even a little bit. I think a lot of them look like girls. I mean, they look like people, females. They look like regular people. But there's all, there is a tendency, I think, in this kind of pornography we're talking about to distort the female body with, you know, implants and all these sorts of things that, you know, kind of like... <laughs> Are you into women or aren't you is is part of my question. Like, if that's what you like, do you really like women? Excuse the concept of um, <laughs> yeah. what people look I like. Think, I, yeah. Well, I think also something that I think OnlyFans, like, has kind of brought to the table for all of the pros and cons is, like, I feel like it's more like you get to really pick what you're looking for in a part. Like, you know what I mean? And it's like these real people. Like I've watched a lot of supporting someone more individually. Yeah. And it's a lot of times these people on OnlyFans, they, they have deep friendships with their, their fans and their subscribers. And it's like some of these women, their sex workers will like, I've watched a lot of documentaries and they'll talk about how like, sometimes these guys just pay to like talk to them. So it's like a different, I think it, like offers a different perspective i guess on sex and you know what i mean it's a more emotional component it's not if you're just having... like looking at Pornhub. yeah it's like yeah, and it's also right. like i mean you could get into the technicalities of like monetary where only fans yeah. is like failing but mm-hmm. so that was my doc for the most part it was at least before like changes in the last like year it was like offering everyday women or men or whoever an opportunity to be to get into sex work and i don't know anyway sorry i've been taking that's your thing (laughs) been taking a lot of these classes that talk about this and i don't know it's interesting well perfect that works out today (laughs) despite prohibitions against adolescent sexual activity reich observes that sexual behavior which could be justifiably called abstinence is so extremely rare that in a practical way it does not count at all Masturbation is the product of the adolescent's inability to marry and fulfill the sex drive. However, it's better than abstinence. Those with the most unfavorable prognosis never masturbated but suppressed their sexuality. Abstinence, he says, is dangerous and absolutely harmful to health. It causes nervous disturbances, or the adolescent begins to indulge in elaborate sexual daydreams which interrupt his ability to function in his daily life. I don't know how you get out of a- elaborate sexual daydreams as an adolescent, but still. Yeah, that's a that's a point. It's just yeah. part of the territory, Reich, but uh, <laughs> I, I get his point. There is There used to be a lot of scolding against masturbation. I think in some households, this is still the case. Yeah, I think also for uh, like women or females, it's even more like you don't learn about, typically you don't learn about masturbation until you're like in your 20s. At least that's been my... uh, Isn't that odd? Yeah, no one wants to talk about female masturbation. It makes everybody uncomfortable for some reason. Yeah, I mean... I don't get it. I don't even think, like, to be totally, like, honest, like, I didn't have any comprehension of what, like, an orgasm even felt like or remotely until I was in my 20s. Because it's just not... I guess it leans into the whole, like, especially if you're straight or, like, you're sleeping with, like, you're female sleeping with men, I feel like it tends to... Like, the whole porn thing, like you were saying, I guess that's where that factors in. Like that makes me sad, you know. dude. Yeah. <laughs> Nikki, can you make me feel any better? Or uh, no, I think I was eighteen. Oh, well, that's a little bit better. That's a, it was a little bit better, slightly yeah. better. But I've been having sex for a while. Well, boy. I mean, I lost my vir- to get like if we're gonna get into this, I don't know if we want to get into this, but I lost my virginity. It's up to you, man. Like, way young, and not like that sounds bad. It was by choice, but well, you know, as much as you know, my boyfriend when I was fourteen was like if you love me, you'll do this. And I was like, (laughs) okay. Like, well, like I, so like I, you know, I feel like I was having sex all through high school and, and stuff like that, but I wasn't like getting any like personal gratification from it really. And didn't really like understand that I should have been, do you know what I mean? Like that was never a thought. It was like, Oh, this is a chore. Like I have to do Mm -hmm. this. And then it was, it wasn't until my twenties when, I like finally was like with a partner that was that cared. The early 20th century view of sex was that it was for procreation and not pleasure. But Reich says this popular Victorian notion closely identified with Christian sexual ethics is ridiculous. 
women can reasonably birth and raise about five children, he says. But hey, I didn't know we were labeling how reasonable. Okay. I guess he, I mean, my grandmothers both had five children. Uh, They are superheroes. You do it yeah. through your twenties, I guess. You you produce your children. It's is his point, um, and and you two people, I guess. Anyway, so I, <laughs> I, I I see what he means. I guess. Um, yeah, I guess I understand. But but, yeah, but he's going to put a big asterisk on this. Uh, so following bi- their biological needs, people can birth and raise about five children. But people have sex between three and four thousand times between the ages of fourteen and fifty. Yeah. Given this disconnect, any prohibitions against contraception or contraceptive practices seems absurd. (laughs) I love that point. I think it's really elegant. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, who wants to think? You guys can't think about raising five kids, but who wants to think about raising more is part of it what he's saying. But you're going to have sex 4,000 times and you're supposed to only have five kids? That doesn't even make sense. No. No. If premarital sex and contraception are good ideas and masturbation is better than nothing, what are Reich's thoughts on marriage? What are his thoughts on marriage? Here we go. He thinks long-term relationships are a good idea, but he has complicated ideas about monogamy. Short-lived sexual relationships are not necessarily neurotic, but people unable to form long-term sexual relationships do suffer from neurosis. The problem with short-term relationships is that they do not allow for the same complete sensual adaptation between the partners. Partners need to get to know each other sexually and to understand each other's sexual desires and needs in order to satisfy each other. I'm with him. Yeah. Yeah. It takes more than a one-night or even a two-night stand for partners to be able to truly satisfy each other. Besides, having a suitable, regular sexual partner frees the person up to do other things. That's true. (laughs) Even with Tinder, finding people to have sex with is time-consuming. He doesn't say that, but that's me. (laughs) On the flip side, all that swiping. Who has time? I got shit to do. I have a podcast and a job and kids. Come on. Yeah, and a wife. Right? (laughs) Right? That wife, she really eats up my Tinder time. She really does. I, yeah. Couples seeking couples. On the flip side, the difficulty of a permanent sexual relationship is a contradiction. First, you experience the temporary or final dulling of sensual desire balanced against the increasing tender attachment to the partner in every sexual relationship, Reich says. Sooner or later... This is going to make some people sad. Wait, what? You're saying that if you get closer to someone, it gets worse? Like sex? Just follow me. Follow okay. me. Get, get sad later. Don't get sad in advance. In every sexual relationship, Reg says, sooner or later, we experience periods of diminished sexual attraction or sensual indifference. Oh, okay. Come on. Yeah. This indifference inspires an unconscious hatred of the partner. Oh the wife God. hates her husband. The wife <laughs> The wife hates her husband because she desires other men. The husband hates the wife because he desires other women. Or, you know, we could this could be in a gay relationship as well, or whatever. And the spouse frustrates the partner's desire for these other people just by existing. <laughs> then you meet somebody else's wife and break up her marriage, and together you plan how to murder your wife and frame the gardener, and you all end up on an episode of Dateline or Sword and Scale, or honestly, probably both, and like 15 other true crime podcasts. Reich says all that. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, he predicted true crime podcasts. Yeah, that hatred. Yeah, I mean, how often? How many Datelines are there? Like, it's all about a guy yeah. who, a guy or a woman. It's also women who murder their husbands with yeah. the guy that they're sleeping with. There's yeah. a lot of people yeah. who do that. It's a problem. Nobody would think of blaming anybody for not wanting to wear the same dress year in, year out, or for getting tired of eating the same food all the time. Only in the sexual realm has the exclusiveness of possession attained a great emotional significance. This, because of the interlacing of economic interests and sexual relations, made natural jealousy expand into the right of possession. Just break up, you know? Yeah, you'd think that would be a lot easier than a literal entire murder plot. It goes to show you how deep this marriage thing is in society, you know? That's true. Maybe, maybe like, oh, God, right? There's, like, money and shit involved. Forget marriage isn't just, like, oh, you love that person and, like, you wrote it down on paper. It's, like, 
Yeah, yeah. Divorce, all your assets and the children. It's a disaster. Yeah. Wow. These people on Dateline think it's just easier to murder somebody. I mean, it kind of... No, that's a bad thing. Yeah. It kind of sounds like it's a lot of work to get out of a marriage. Be careful, Nikki. One day, somebody, someone will go back to this episode yep. in a court trial. <laughs> Oh no! Haha, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> she didn't mean that, but it'll be great for our uh, our listenership. So, <laughs> woman confesses to killing husband five years before marrying him on podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> Once individuals push through this irrational idea that is marriage, uh, they find temporary extramarital engagements do not threaten or undermine their relationships. This recognizes is difficult and rare. So he's sort of advocating open relationships in a way that you could be with your partner, but have a little, you know, side action and that that will keep you happy and happy with your partner. Um, okay. So why don't we do, I know, open relationships, we know these days, and we all know people who are trying them and it's never going especially well. I mean, if it's truly like, you know, I don't know, some people can do it, if but it's, yeah, it's tough. If it's if it's truly what both people want, yeah. then, then they can make it work. But what I see often with, with people who try is one person is doing it to please another person. And that's yeah. that gets really messy. One person wants it more than another. Couples seeking mm-hmm. couples, like that. That seems like, <laughs> but that seems like the best arrangement to me, right? Couples yeah. seeking couples. Like everyone's involved. Nobody gets left out. It's when you're going on True. dates and your wife's at home. That's when it gets weird. That is weird. Or when you're, you know, open about being attracted to women and men, and then a couple's like, "Oh, so you want to have sex with both of us at the same time?" It's like that's uh, that's not a what lot. That means, <laughs> Yeah, but it could. It could. I guess Nikki, in my universe, I'm all right with that. That sort of makes sense to me, like because then because then they're both there for the relationship. I, I get what you're saying. Like yeah. it, that doesn't imply that you do want to have sex with both of them. But if you did, I think it's more on the table with everybody. Well, yeah, you know, everyone's on the same page about it. Couple seeking. That's, yeah. Couple seeking Nikki. <laughs> Oh no! Oh no! That's like when Olivia made that joke about Brian seeking oh, a third. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. you're always getting caught up in that. <sighs> Society has great interest in maintaining, says Reich, the authoritarian family, and reinforces what is, from the standpoint of psychology and biology, very difficult to maintain. The nuclear family reinforces patriarchy, heteronormativity, and the conditions for its own reproduction ad nauseum. All of our families are little like capitalist self-reproducing entities. Okay. Reich relates the strange story of the Cleveland City Schools, which decided to teach the card game Bridge to students so that when they married, they would be more likely to spend time together at home, quote, in good company. Rather than separately doing their own activities. They didn't want dad to go out bowling. They didn't want bowling night. Oh my God. Keep individual solitaire keep them together yeah this whole podcast would horrify the cleveland city schools because my wife is nowhere to be seen (laughs) talking about sex with strange women yep Uh, you guys aren't even playing bridge right now. nope we're not even we've never even picked up a deck of cards um women's and children's economic dependence on men requires the continuation of monogamous marriage theoretically a communist system that empowers all workers would relieve this burden and eliminate compulsory marriage so again in the 1950s and 1940s this makes good sense a woman Mm -hmm. has no freedom to live her own life because she needs that man if she divorces him that's it Reflecting the ethos of the time, which continues to linger, in my opinion, in our 21st century culture, Reich says it's easier for a man to cheat on his wife than for a woman to cheat on her husband. Let me explain. When a woman cheats on a man, the men are considered cuckolds or impotent. Oh, okay. This is still true, right? It, it like unmans him. Yeah. I, I, stereotypical culture. Social yeah. Norms, you might as well culture. lop off his genitals. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lorena Bobbitt heard that. Yeah, there's a name we haven't heard in a while. When a man cheats on a woman, however, people feel bad for the woman. Women are pitied, he says, for their economic dependence. So people are like, oh, that's too bad. For a man, they're like, ah, you you tiny penis. (laughs) I I feel like that's that's kind of true, but then I would also counter that there's a lot of circumstances where women are then blamed and like, well, what were you not doing for him? That made him go seek elsewhere, but 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's more common for a man to get that line of thinking, oh, well, she he wasn't pleasing his woman, but I, I hear you. Because, yeah. you know, if he's, a good, if he's a real man, then his woman doesn't need another man. True, but if she's like a real woman and is doing her job as a wife, quotes, air quotes everywhere, you know? I will say I, I have heard that. Yeah, I've heard that line of thought in certain communities. Pity for, um, like, yeah, housewives. You, you you have nothing. Mm-hmm. Your husband is like your line to money and shelter and literally everything. And then if they cheat on you, like, of course, people are going to feel bad for you because they're like, oh, no, Susie's going to be homeless soon. He, he's got a new girl. Yeah, that is a good yeah. <laughs> The demand to have sex with one partner for life is difficult, especially for the woman on whom extramarital prohibitions fall hardest. He says the demand for a lifelong sexual relationship creates a necess- necessity, it creates of necessity, a revolt against the compulsion, whether this revolt is conscious or unconscious. So we're all like internally rebelling against our monogamous relationships. A healthy individual, orgastically satisfied, who has overcome socially constructed moralism, no longer holds any argument against intercourse with other partners. Mm. I'm just saying if they're like satisfied in their relationship, they won't look elsewhere. He's saying you will and you'll be fine with it. Like you'll be you'll be like, hey, wife, uh, here's the thing. Uh, I'm bored with you. So I'm going to have sex with this other girl for a little while. But we'll we'll be married. I'll come back. I'll get unbored eventually. We're just going through a, you know, we're going through a little dry spell. I mean, we do go through these. He's right. Come on. Be honest. We go through these dry spells. but you don't just... Okay, anyway. Right. Well, he's saying... Reich is saying, well, if you feel that way, why is it not okay for you to, you know, just fool around for a little bit and come home? Okay. Well, you know, anyway. That's fine. (laughs) I, I... It's... I get it. I get that it's complicated, but the theory, you know, I, I, we can't disagree with them that when you're in a relationship for a long time, we're going to have these feelings. And the question does, why don't we deal with those feelings? Well, because we're not supposed <laughs> well, to. I think you can deal with them and just not act crazy, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, there's a way, yeah, and there's a way to talk about these things and not a... Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. like cheating. He's per se. he's envisioning a whole other society where we don't even conceive of it as cheating. Like this is just where the other partner's like, "Yes, that is valid. You're bored with me. Go have sex with her. I'll wait. Right. I'll have just sex with her. Everyone's just chill with it. If that's how you're feeling, yeah, you just follow those feelings mm-hmm. as you need to, and continue to raise your children together. Whatever you're doing in the home, it's like a completely new society. I get and I agree that it this this does not work for us in the western world today but in theory in an ideal world where everybody thinks this way so the moral of reich's story long-term monogamous relationships are a good idea and permit satisfying sex and tender connection but absolute monogamy if you're not honest with yourself leads to unconscious hatred and resentment if as i think olivia might be starting to feel a little bit suffocated by all this (laughs) let's relax uh, Reich is a modernist. So here we go. Rob's take. I'm going to straighten this out, make us feel a little bit better. Reich is a modernist trained by Freud who saw sex as the fundamental element of human life. For a modernist, there has to be some single underlying structure that explains everything. Reich actually split the baby by ascribing a psychoanalytic perspective on sexual repression and Marxist economic philosophy, sort of joined them together. But as the existentialists and postmodernists discovered after the modernists, the complexities of reality cannot be boiled down to one single underlying force that explains everything. If we're miserable, it's not all sex, but it could be a little bit sex or maybe even a lot of sex. Reich had some truly penetrating observations about the complexities of sexual psychology, pun intended, particularly for the time. But married life is too complicated to be reduced down to the bedroom. Reich is right that intimacy and sex are an important component, not only of a relationship, but for most people, a life. And we can lie to ourselves about sex as profoundly and fiercely as we lie to ourselves about death. But if you murder your wife, sex is only part of the problem. And if you're happy in marriage, it's not solely because you're having great sex and occasionally invite your neighbors to join you. Sex is a big part of life, but there is more to life than sex. 
<laughs> That's how I'm concluding our whole series on sex. There is more to life than sex. Reich himself demonstrated this in his rich career of research, writing, and radicalism. Final thoughts, ladies. Uh, yeah, way more interesting topic in general than I thought. All I really knew about it was those weird little, as uh, Olivia put it, little microwave boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that uh, the, the guy had some more interesting views than I than I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Olivia, thoughts? I feel like I'm more confused on how Sherry Schreiner than and like all these conspiracy <laughs> people use the organ thing because now I'm like what? But you know, it's fine. Also, I feel like uh, everyone's going to know a lot more about me than they really anticipated this episode. And I could uh, put it on the Patreon, you know, maybe. I mean, I don't. <laughs> that, that was care, a long but it was digression. A so. Yeah, it was a tangent. Yeah, it's a long digression, so we might we might drop that on the Patreon. We got a little tangenty there. We did. Yeah. But. So if you feel like you didn't hear enough about Olivia's sex life or Nikki's <laughs> uh, or my opinions, then uh, certainly by all means become a patron. And if you'll join the patron if you hear more, then we could just I could just post monologues just talking. We'll just about... we got lots. Me and Olivia. Oh my talk. god! A lot of just Nikki and I talking about that for Patreon. Yeah, exactly. Call a cult confessions your daddy. <laughs> So, let me just close with a right quote that I'm going to read rather than have our guy do it. In the conflict between instinct and morals, ego and outer world, the organism is forced to armor itself against the instinct as well as the outer world. The armoring of the organism results inevitably in a limitation of the total ability to live. Isn't that what we do as artists, right? As people who storytellers, people who express ourselves, we try to take off that armor. Get naked. We got to get naked. <laughs> yep. Your Nikki knows. <laughs> yep. It's warm in this closet. <laughs> again? You did it again? Okay, so our sources today. When you said warm are... in that closet, I thought I started thinking about those boxes again. I'm like, I'm honestly. <laughs> this is my organ closet. I just need a metal layer. On... Oh, no, it's wood. It won't work. Yeah. Nikki gets naked in her organ box. I don't like those pictures anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they're really, they're really. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sources today include Wilhelm Reich's The Sexual Revolution, translated by Theodore P. Wolf, Wilhelm Reich's The Orgo and Energy Accumulator, Its Scientific and Medical Use, James Strix, Wilhelm Reich Biologist, and Philip W. Bennett's The Persecution of Dr. Wilhelm Reich by the Government of the United States in the International Forum of Psychoanalysis 2010. All right, Olivia, let's get out of here. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. My name is Rob C. Thompson. Uh, our voice today was by Sean Priest doing Dr. Wilhelm Reich. Uh, joining me at the mic as our Nikki Hiller Henderson. You got to get a title, man. Uh, <laughs> I do need to our get Nikki. Our Canadian. <laughs> the Canadian. <laughs> yeah, we'll do better yeah, than that. Maybe not. Livy and I will start thinking oh, about yeah. it. Probably have to work nudity in there. I don't know. You got a lot of, oh, no. you got some hallmarks that you're, <laughs> you've really latched on to. <laughs> Olivia Litterall is our uh, queen of Scorpio season. Woo! It's here. And, and Grandmaster. Cool. Yes. And cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, that's it. That's it for sex, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. We will certainly talk about sex a lot more on this show, but that was our season devoted to uh, things sex other than sex magic. Next time, uh, we're going to start our season on doppelgangers. Yeah, doubles that haunt us. All right, here on Occult Confessions, 